Okay, well, let's, let's open up with prayer. Father, thank you for this time to be together, to open scripture, and to read it together, and to discuss it. And we thank you for the, the truths that you have given to us in its sacred pages. And we pray that we would understand these things that we read here this evening as we, we walk through uh, John 3 and hopefully um, further into the chapter and, and into John 4. And we pray that we would understand uh, what you have spoken uh, to your people for all time uh, in these passages, that we would see uh, the work and the teaching of our Savior, and that we would be submissive to what he says and rejoice in what he says and um, take your word into our hearts and hide it there that we might not sin against you. We do pray uh, for those in our church that are suffering. We're thankful that Elizabeth um, Shannon is back home and doing better and that um, she just had a, a mini stroke. And we also um, pray for Jesse uh, James as she grieves the loss of her mother. Thank you that in those uh, waning years of her life, she made a, a strong profession of faith in Christ. And I pray that you bless that family as they grieve her loss, the loss of a grandma and of a mother and a friend. And we pray for the others at church that are that are suffering, going through trials. And pray you be with uh, all of our church's covenant children, be with our marriages, help us to love one another well as a church family. And I just thank you for everyone that is able to be here this evening and bless our time in your word now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're on John chapter, we're on John chapter 3, John 3, here Jesus with uh, Nicodemus, um, very familiar text of scripture, but there's a lot of um, extremely important uh, teaching here in this uh, chapter, so I'll just begin at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. And so, first of all, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were part of the Sanhedrin. They were part of the, the religious court of Israel there. And notice, he at least addresses Jesus here as rabbi. Um, a lot of his uh, fellow Pharisees had said that Jesus was demon-possessed and said all kinds of other things, said he's a glutton, a drunkard, a, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners and things like that. But here at least uh, Nicodemus addresses him as rabbi. And how does he know that Jesus comes from God? He, he's not confessing that he is God, but he's saying, we know that you're from God. We know that God is with you. How, how does he know that? The signs and wonders. Okay, and remember, a lot of his fellow Pharisees thought that Jesus cast out demons and did his miracles by what power? By Satan, by Beelzebub. What is, does anyone know what does Beelzebub mean in Aramaic? Lord of the Flies, that's right. So it's the devil himself. Yeah, isn't that weird? Yeah. Anyone have to read that book when you were in school? Lord of the Flies. Yeah, it's actually a good manifesto for total depravity. So, yeah. Anyway. <coughs> So he comes to Jesus at night. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And there the word born is the normal word for uh, beget, like a father would, would beget a son. But the word again that's used there is the Greek word anothen, which means again or from above. So born again or born from above. And 
it's really remarkable. John, John chapter 3, this little block of text, these, these 10 verses, really the, the whole chapter, is remarkable in how revolutionary it is um, to what the Pharisees themselves thought. Because he's telling him, if this doesn't happen to you, you can't see the kingdom of God. Now, as far as the Pharisees go, what did they think qualified them to be in God's kingdom and to be on the side of God and to have eternal life and everything? What did they think? I'm sorry? Being a descendant of Abraham, it guaranteed it to him. Okay? And so Jesus kind of, this teaching rules that out. Because he's saying if if anyone is going to see it, they have to be born again. What else? What, What did they think qualified them to be in the kingdom of God? Their own righteousness, their own obedience, right? Because that's what they really prided themselves on. Remember, the Pharisees were really looked at by the common Jewish people as being really as righteous as a a human being really could be. Which is why when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot be saved, you can't have eternal life. So he's telling him right out of the gate. I, I love how really Jesus ignores what he says there. You know, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs. And he just goes right, right to the heart of the matter. This guy's a teacher of Israel. And he's saying, if you've not been born or begotten from above by the supernatural power of God, you can't see the kingdom of God. And just like in the previous chapter, remember, what did Jesus say in the previous chapter that was misunderstood because it was interpreted literally? In John 2, right at the end, he's standing in front of something. Tear down this temple and raise it. Mm-hmm. And what do they what do they think he was talking about? The physical temple that he was standing by, okay. And we know that's not what he meant. What what was he really talking about? His body, his resurrection from the dead. And it says at the end there, and when he rose from the dead, then his disciples remembered this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's one thing commentators point out: the way that those things are equated, scripture and what Jesus says are on par with one another, okay. So here, Nicodemus, verse 4, said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So he also misunderstands him because he takes him literally. He thinks he's talking about being you know, reborn. Or he probably didn't actually literally think that. He just clearly doesn't understand what he's talking about. What, what he thinks um, that means is, is just clear. He just doesn't understand it. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And there, that's just another way of referring to this birth from above, this being begotten from above or from God, this being born again, born of water and the Spirit. Because remember, we looked back at Ezekiel last time, the being sprinkled with pure water and being washed you know, is a reference to the new birth. That's the way the prophets talked about the new birth, being washed and uh, being sprinkled with clean, clean water, having a new heart put in you and all, all of that. So he's really just reiterating it in a different way, uh, that you have to be born again. And then verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, what do you think that means? Why, why is he saying that to him? We are, we are in the flesh, not, not that we're made of matter, that's not what he's talking about, but we're in our sinful nature. What can the sinful nature give birth to? More sin, right? And that which is born of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, is Spirit. He, this is a roundabout way of him 
telling him, this has got to happen to you. There's nothing you can do to make it happen, Nicodemus. In other words, you're a sinner. Um, the only thing you can produce is more of that. So the Spirit's got to do this. And as I mentioned to you last time, I've always wondered why he, he says, do not marvel that I said that to you. I just would love to see a picture of Nicodemus's face like, just total befuddlement. He has no idea what he is talking about here. So he says in verse 7, Do not marvel, I said to you, you must be born again. And then he kind of reiterates what he said in verse 6, in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. That's such a great illustration, the wind. You know, because you, you just can't see the wind. I remember uh, my dad was kind of like liked science, and he would um, show me stuff at like the, in National Geographic magazine, and he would um, show me calculations. He was really proud of this TI eighty one calculator that was like as big as my forearm. Anyone have one of those with the red display on it and everything? And he would do these things. He would get a piece of paper out. He's like, "Son, I want you to understand how far away the closest star is to us." And he would do this calculation, you know, you have any idea how fast light goes and you turn the flashlight on and he wrote out 186,000 miles, not 186,000 miles per hour, but per second. And then he would do this calculation, would type it in, write the next number and the next number and would show me all this stuff. And it was uh, like, wow, just really, really blown away by that. But he also told me about uh, air pressure. He said, son, um, have you ever seen pictures of astronauts in space? I said, yeah. Um, he said, they, they, have you ever noticed they have to wear those suits? And I said, yeah. He said, do you know why? No. He said, because it has to simulate the air pressure on Earth. And I had no idea why. He said, because if they didn't wear those, their blood would boil. I was like, really? How cool is that? Like, <laughs> their blood would boil. Yeah. He said, the weight of the air on this planet literally holds your body together. And so as the higher you go, that's why when you get to a certain height, like you're trying to climb Mount Everest, when you get past a certain height, they call it the death zone because your body can just shut off. It's just, it's not getting enough oxygen. The air is so thin. There's not enough pressure on you when you get that high up in the air. But wind is invisible and you think, you don't think of it as taking up space and having weight to it, but it does. And one of the great illustrations of, of this, every time I, I read this verse, I remember when Hurricane Ike hit Cincinnati, okay, this, which is weird because Cincinnati, Ohio is in the middle of the U.S. And it was, it was the leftover, it was like this leftover arm from one of these tropical storms that, in August. And this arm was coming up and it brought 80 and 90 mile an hour gusts of wind into my backyard. And there was not a cloud in the sky anywhere. And it was on a Sunday afternoon. I was sitting in the backyard and, you know, Paul was out there playing. He was a little kid. And I thought, wow, it's getting really windy. And looking around, there's like, there's no clouds anywhere. And then I'm sipping coffee and I was listening to something. I wasn't really paying attention. All of a sudden, Paul comes screaming, you know, and running back into the house. I'm like, what is going on? And there's tree branches flying everywhere. And I'm watching, I'm watching tree branches being blown so hard. They're, they're peeling off that green stuff and ripping the bark off and flying off over that way. We had no electricity for um, just over 24 hours. We had friends that had no electricity for four and five days. And they were like trying to, trying to find people that had electricity so they could take showers and boil water and things like that. But you could not see the wind at all. All you could see was the, the effects of it. And I always think of 
that when Jesus says this here, the wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. And that's true. I remember doing a 360 in my backyard, looking all the way around, like, where is this coming from? There were no clouds anywhere, nothing. But it was sure the, the effects were just devastating, just knocked over so many trees. You, you think about that, a, an area of the world that's not used to wind like that, there's going to be trees all over the place that enough wind's going to knock them all over. There were so many trees down uh, because the wind doesn't blow like that usually there. And, and so many power lines down and so much, so much damage done from that. But he tells Nicodemus, see the last phrase of verse 8, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's the sovereign Holy Spirit. I remember when I took systematic theology and, and um, the professor, Ligon Duncan, I was listening to lectures, he kept talking about the sovereign spirit. Um, that's how people are saved. It's the sovereign God who does this. And he works immediately on the souls of men. This, is, this doesn't happen through baptism. It doesn't happen through a sacrament. We don't have control of this. Um, this is what God does. God is the one who makes people born again. Okay, so look at verse um, 15, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, that verse is often misused to say, well, see, he, uh, he died for everybody. But if you look carefully at the passage, it actually limits the grace of God to those that believe is what it says. Who, who gets eternal life? The, the believing ones, those that believe, will not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world, meaning the world of sinful humanity, such that this offer goes out to the world. This gospel goes out to the world, and we should press that on people and tell them you need to repent and believe it so you can be saved. And those that believe will have eternal life. They will be saved. Okay, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So why, why do people refuse to believe in Jesus? Because their deeds are evil. Their deeds are evil because they love sin, right? So all the intellectual objections, are those typically real problems that people have or is there some, some other issue going on there? People may have real questions for sure and they need answers to those questions, but really what's going on is always people are enslaved to their sin, they love their sin, just like, like we would. You know, we had a sin nature. Flesh can only give birth to flesh. And so if we have a heart that's been changed, it's because um, the Spirit gave birth, um, gave us second birth, gave us the new birth. Okay, okay verse um, 20. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. You know, I had a, a roommate um, who was on the basketball team at Ohio University, and we were up till the wee hours of the morning, and I was witnessing to him, trying to share the gospel with him, and um, he kept throwing out objections, throwing out objections, and I was trying to answer them, and 
finally about two thirty, three o'clock in the morning, <clears throat> he finally just said, I don't want to believe what you're saying because then I can't sleep with my girlfriend. <laughs> I would have to stop sending. I was like, well, you could have said that at 10, man. <laughs> we've, been, we've been at this for five hours. So actually, so all these objections are not really a problem, are they? Okay, what's the real problem? We like sin. We want to keep on sinning. I, don't, I want to be unhindered. You know, and there, there's so many quotations too. You know, the whole issue of creation and evolution. So many of those evolutionists, we want life to have no meaning because it frees us to our own political and erotic pursuits. With the, that way, I know there's no accountability in the ultimate sense for anything that I do. Okay, so that's the way we all are, um, apart from this new birth here. So Jesus really laid it on the line, and this teaching is, is so clear. Uh, what he says to him, and he really gives him, you know, one of the clearest statements of the gospel. This all this stuff about condemnation, and this is the condemnation, and he who believes in me has eternal life and will never perish. And um, is really explaining Nicodemus's unbelief to him. Nicodemus was a slave of sin too. Even those Pharisees were slaves of sin. Even though that that would have been so repulsive for them to even think such a thing, but they themselves were slaves of sin too. Okay, verse twenty-two. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, He is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Basically, that's just him, him saying, uh, the one I've been telling you about is here. This is him. And then he says that great verse, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Okay, in other words, my time my time as an Old Testament prophet is, is over. Jesus has now been baptized, and that really marks the start of his public ministry, and John's, John's time is now is finished. Okay? Now, there's dispute. In fact, as I was uh, thinking about um, reading John 3, I remember um, had a, this faint memory I remember there's dispute about who's talking in at the end of John's John chapter three. And there is verse 31 through 36. And so I was looking at my, my seminary notes from Dr. Waters. Waters thinks um, this is John the Baptist still talking here. D.A. Carson thinks this is John the apostle, the author of the gospel here, injecting some of his own comments. Now it doesn't really affect anything that, that we believe, but it's interesting to look at. You could, you could see, okay, yeah, that is John the Baptist still talking. But then if you think, well, maybe that's actually John the Apostle giving some commentary on what just happened here. It's really, it's kind of hard to tell. So I'm, I'm curious to see what you guys think. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the spirit by measure. 
The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What do you think? Is that still John the Baptist talking, or is that John the Apostle? <laughs> it's kind of hard. It almost sounds like the parts of 1 John, doesn't it? It does, and that's one of the arguments. Yeah. Yeah, same vocabulary, same phraseology that he uses in First John. Yeah. Also, I was trying to, does John the Baptist ever use the term the Son? Or is that more John the Apostle? Um, that sounds, that's a good argument for John the Apostle. Yeah. So, it, it doesn't make a huge difference. John 3.36 is a really important Bible verse, though. It's a great verse to memorize, to share with people. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Okay, and that's what pe- people don't, don't like that, that teaching, but that God is a God of wrath. I, I've been listening to um, Thomas Watson's book on the Ten Commandments, and it's just outstanding. It's so great. It's just great, great theology, really good stuff. And he's finished all Ten Commandments, and now he's talking about the purpose of the law and everything and, and the foolishness of sin. He has this whole section on how, how foolish it is to sin. And he has all these little aphorisms and sayings, and I keep stopping the, the audio book to like send myself emails. And sometimes I'm in the car, and I'm like, I shouldn't do that when I'm driving. So, but I so. But anyway, I sent myself an email today. He had this little phrase, uh, how foolish is it to, um, for one sip of pleasure to have to drink a sea of wrath? I thought, that's great. It's right on the money. Um, and he just has this whole discourse on the wrath of God. He said, those who are in hell um, will never cry out that this is unfair. Um, God's, God's wrath is never unfair. It's never severe. It is only just and righteous at all times. And that's all it is, is perfectly just and righteous. And that's why when you hear people uh, get upset about, well, what about those who have never heard? And, you know, people that, is it, is it okay for God to send people to hell for their sins? And my response to that would be, how dare we think otherwise? How dare we even question such a thing? Is that, is that, how could we possibly think there's anything wrong with God being just towards someone? And that, that's like saying, is it, you know, should that judge really sentence that person who's guilty of multiple homicides to death? Is, that, is it really okay for, for him to do that? Of course it is. That's justice, isn't it? And we all believe in the death penalty, right? Okay. And the, the Old Testament doesn't make excuses for, you know, um, insanity and things like that. It's a, it's a bizarre thing. Uh, people will say that, well, I wasn't saying when, when I did it. Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you took someone's life. That's what's just. So if you believe in Christ, uh, you um, have life, everlasting life, and those who don't will not see life because the wrath of God abides on him. Okay, any thoughts or questions or comments on John 3? What well, said there about uh, that like insanity plea. Yeah. Yeah. And 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like living, living in contradiction to what we were created to do. And created for communion with God and to obey God and to have joy in obeying God. Isn't that the strangest thing? I wonder at times, and I'm sure you wonder too, why do I want to sin? Why do I want to? I still want to. I still want to do things that are, I still do things that are, that are sinful. Why do I do that? And yeah, that's, that's the struggle. You still have that principle of rebelliousness. It's still there. It's like you want to stomp it out. It just doesn't go away. It just, you can mortify it and, and fight it. And we have to keep doing that all, all the time, but it just won't go away. All, it just won't disappear altogether. So, all right, John chapter four. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, what do you all know about the Samaritans? What can you tell me about who these people are? Anybody? Except the northern kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yep. They were um, half, like in, intermarried between northern um, Israelites and the Assyrians. The Assyrian resettlers. Mm-hmm. See, after the, you know, they're often called the ten lost tribes of, of Israel. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, one thing when I was, remember when we went through, took three and a half years to go through Luke's gospel? Remember the early sermons? I'm sure you all remember this. Um, when uh, Zacharias, the priest, you know what tribe he was from? Asher, which is one of the northern tribes. I thought, wow. So they weren't completely lost. There were a few people that knew um, they were from one of those northern, northern tribes. But when the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom, they didn't like take them off into captivity. They really just annihilated the whole place. And what the Assyrians would do is they would resettle those areas. And of course, there were a few Jewish people, a few Israelite, I shouldn't call them Jews, they weren't from the southern kingdom. Israelites were left over. They interbred with those Assyrians and they became the Samaritans. And what of the uh, pure Jews in the south that came back from the captivity and lived in that area from the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther all, all the way to the present time here, what do they think of the Samaritans? I'm sorry? Gentiles. I, I can't hear they you. Thought they, were Gentiles. they did. They, they really, they thought as low of them as you could think of human beings. Which is why, who, who is the hero in Jesus' parables he tells the Pharisees in them? <laughs> Samaritan. Okay, Samaritans. He was just doing that to stick them. Also to let them know that the, um, the missional element of the Great Commission is coming. And I think that's um, part of the reason that this is here in John chapter 4. Okay, so you have a woman. Typically, men didn't speak with, with women like this in public. But also, they're in Samaria. And the Jewish people typically didn't go through that area. In fact, the stuff that you know, I've read about that, they, they felt that if they breathed the air in that area, it would infect them. Okay, so this is pretty remarkable. Not only is Jesus going to talk to a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman and a Samaritan woman in Samaria with a very sordid past. And yet she's one of the early converts. Okay. And it's almost like you have this like mini revival that takes place after she understands this. In fact, in John's gospel, he, he reveals himself directly to her as the Messiah. Remember at one point she says, 
Uh, well, we know when Messiah comes, he's going to tell us everything. What does Jesus say? I who speak to you am he. Okay, and then she goes back and tells the, the village, and they all want to hear from him. And so that's pretty, pretty amazing. He was rejected by his own, and he was received by the notoriously evil, the, the notoriously wicked, and people that were looked down upon by um, those that were supposed to be God's people who were supposed to have a heart for everybody. Okay, verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So there, there's a good humanity of Christ passage. You know, he, he was weary. He was weary. Verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Okay, here, here again, you see the pattern? Okay, misunderstanding because of taking him literally. But also, it's emphasizing the, the whole issue of the only way that you can know and understand these spiritual things, they have to be given to you from above. That's one of the major themes of John's gospel. I mean, you just can't miss it. The doctrine of election and the necessity of divine enlightenment and the divine new birth to understand these things. Okay? Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Okay, so there you see again, she thinks he's talking about literal, literal thirst. What do you think he means, spiritually speaking? Since we, we know he's talking about spiritual thirst, what is that spiritual thirst that people have? If you come to Christ, you'll never have it again. You'll never thirst like that again. What do you think? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the need for salvation, sure. Okay, it's it's all it's all that stuff. Very very often, it's it's. I think it's not overly helpful if we portray the need to come to Christ solely as that which gives you a sense of of meaning in life and um, knowing God. Th- those are the byproducts of being born again and being saved. Is now I know why I'm here and I know why God made me. But yeah, that's a big part of, of people's problem too. They don't know who they are or who made them or who they belong to. They don't realize that human beings have dignity. They don't realize they have dignity, that they shouldn't allow people to mistreat them and things like that, that we should have a, a sense of self-respect because we were created with class and dignity. Okay, we're made in God's image. And so we, we have value in that sense. Okay, we're sinful and we're in big trouble with God, but there's also that. We come to, to the Lord and that sense of thirst, that sense of, of longing for communion with God um, is, is assuaged. Okay, uh, so immediately after this spiritual conversation, 
Jesus, once again, wastes no time doing what? What is verse 16? What is he immediately going to confront her with? Her sin. Okay, this is always the issue. The issue is always um, the person's sin against God. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, to, said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. And that's a pretty, pretty direct um, statement there. Uh, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay, so he, he got it exactly right here. So she knows immediately, okay, this is, this is not just some Jewish guy. This is something I've never experienced before. So verse 20, she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Do you know what she was referring to there? This mountain to her would be what? Starts with a G. Gerizim. Mount Gerizim. Okay, and that was one of the things the Jews, especially there in the south, really did not like the Samaritans because they worshipped on Mount Gerizim, where biblically, where were you supposed to go to worship? I'm sorry. Which mount in Jerusalem? In Jerusalem. Okay, not not Mount Gerizim, and the, the Samaritans also did not have the full Old Testament. Apparently, they only believe the first five books were. Part of the canon, but they have a truncated canon. They don't worship in the right place. They're half breeds, and she immediately brings up this controversy. And Jesus says in John twenty or John four twenty one, Jesus said to her, "Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews." What does he mean by that? Salvation is of the Jews. They were God's oracle people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And salvation was going to come genealogically from who? From the, from the Jews, okay? Jesus, yeah. <clears throat> Verse 23, But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. Okay, and so that's one reason we, we do evangelism and that we, we want people to come to Christ is we want God to have more worshipers. God deserves as many worshipers as, as possible. And then verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So here he's talking about really when the old covenant era comes to a conclusion, comes to a final conclusion. And there's kind of like a 40-year-long transitional period that's covered, a lot of that's covered in the book of Acts. But what really brings the Old Covenant era to a final conclusion historically? The, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD is really, that's really the end of that. But now we don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to uh, go to a mountain somewhere. Now we can worship anywhere. Now that the, the Spirit's been, been poured out and uh, the gospel's gone forth to the nations and we have the Word of God and we don't need a temple. We don't need a tabernacle. We don't need priests. We don't need animal sacrifices or grain offerings. We don't need to keep feasts and festivals or anything else, contrary to our friend that lives downtown. We don't need to do any of that stuff. Uh, we worship God in spirit and in truth. And then verse 25, the, wom- the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Okay, so he tells her directly. Um, you're talking to him. Okay, you're not going to wait. He's not going to come later and tell you, I just told you. I just told you about all this stuff. Okay, verse 27. 
And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? It's like everything he says, everybody gets wrong. <laughs> What's he talking about? What is his food? The next verse, verse 34. Uh, I'm sorry? To, to do his father's will. And what was the father's will for the Lord Jesus? To save his people from their sins. To, of all you've given me, I will lose none. That, that's his work. That was, that's what kept him going. That was what he was passionate about. Okay, that's just wonderful to, to consider. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, of course. And what was his final, final word on the cross? It's finished. It's done now. I have finished the work. Verse 35. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you enter into their labors. That's an encouraging thought. I mean, who else, what, what New Testament writer picks up on that very same theme and, and says very similar things? Paul does. I, I planted and Apollos watered and... God gives the increase. Always, I would encourage you, don't feel like, you know, I've got to take someone through the whole process. You probably will be a link in the chain for lots of different people. You know, you might be someone that just invites someone to church. Uh, you might be the person that leads them to the Lord. Um, once in a while, you'll meet someone, I, I, I always think of them as um, pieces of low-hanging fruit. <laughs> that they're like ready to, ready to be harvested already. So a lot of other people have done a bunch of stuff and you're just like the last one in the chain and you, you actually get to see them come to Christ. That's happened a couple times you know, here um, in, in my life. It's like, okay, this is the tail end of a lot of other people's work and a lot of stuff that God has done in this person's life. So always know that even just a kind word to someone or, or if they know you're a Christian, being someone that um, is, is a link in the chain. That, that God's going to use to bring them. We enter into the labors of others. Sometimes we're the ones that do the initial uh, stuff. I always wonder all the tracks that have been passed to all the people that you guys have talked to, uh, that we've given tracks to, if down the line they've come to Christ or, you know, I, I, know, I know people who have been led to Christ uh, through things like that. Or a guy I knew when I was in college, he'd never been to church, never read the Bible, uh, just had nothing, never knew anything about anything spiritual related. Someone from Campus Crusade for Christ walks up to him on Daytona Beach and walks him through the four spiritual laws about God and, you know, God has a wonderful plan. I mean, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a good evangelistic method. But the way he described it, he's like, yeah, and I, I just suddenly knew I'm a sinner on my way to hell. And I knew this guy was telling me the truth. And I like, right there. I was converted right there. And I just think that is the coolest story. It's like, it just got up that day. It was like the same old stuff. You know, I was going to go sin and do whatever I wanted. And boom, all of a sudden, I'm a, at the end of the day, I'm a Christian. And, and he was a very devout guy too. I'm like, that's it. That's your story. 
yeah. This guy just walks up to me. He's like, he didn't even do a very good job of explaining it, but it worked, you know, and God showed me my sin and everything else. So anyone here ever had EE training, evangelism explosion training, where you go through the five things, grace, man, God, Christ, faith. And I remember my mother went through that and they would go witness to people and talk to people. And there was this lady um, who was very nervous about it and didn't feel she was very good at it at all. And she actually saw someone make a profession of faith, go from not understanding to understanding. And she's like, yeah, I left out two out of the five points of the presentation, but, but managed to get enough of it in there, managed to get enough of the gospel that God blessed even that and it worked. And this person came to Christ. So, you know, um, if God can speak, as Luther said, if God can, can rebuke someone through a donkey, um, he can use us too. So. Okay, um, verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of, the, of the, uh, because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So, I mean, if his disciples had had their way, they wouldn't have even gone to that area. And there were a lot of elect people who had been given to Christ before the foundation of the world. He went there and he saved them. So that's just glorious stuff to, to see. All right, we've been at this for a while. Anyone have any comments or, or thoughts? Yes, sir. I had a question mm-hmm. back in chapter 3. Mm-hmm. You may have already talked about this when I had to step out. Yes. Um, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Who's we and our? A good question. That It's, it's either um, him and his disciples or the persons of the Trinity. Yeah, because later on, like later in John 5, you have the whole discourse about witnesses and um, the works bear witness. And my father has borne witness and that you, you need two or three witnesses. Um, but I don't think he's referring to his works there. It's probably uh, God, the father and him and the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's his, I don't think he can be referring to his disciples probably because I don't think they understand it yet. So what what do you think? That's that is a hard passage. <laughs> That's what I was wondering if it yeah. if it was um because he's already referred to um somewhat the old testament that there's there's another witness mm-hmm. you're not believing yet and you're not believing me. Yeah, and I think by extension, you would probably say that's a that's an indirect reference to the Spirit because the Spirit is the author of, of the of the text, and also in John five he says um, it, it's an imperative: search the Scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. I think I think that's John five. Is that thirty nine, Chris? You're nodding your head. Is that verse thirty nine of John? No, no, oh, okay, okay. Um, thinking that in them you have eternal life not realizing it's they that testify of me. So this whole idea of witness bearing is, um, is, is part of that too. And that's, of course, that's the spirit. That's the, the spirit is the one who... Yeah, if you look at the end of verse 10 where he says, 
kind of rebukes him and says, are you a master of Israel and not know these things? What's he, really, what's he saying? So you're, I mean, you're, you, know, you should know the scriptures, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're a master, you know, a teacher of Israel. Yeah. These things are all you know, in the scriptures about me. Mm-hmm. And yet, you don't know. Yeah, yeah, you don't know. But if you believe the scriptures, like you were just saying, like how Jesus said elsewhere, yes. they testify to me. Yeah. Yep. Saying, I think when you're saying he's saying we, I think he's talking about him in the scriptures. And scripture, okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's one of, the, one of the most remarkable things about John's gospel, but it's also in, especially in Luke, as we were going through the, the um, his Emmaus discourse with those disciples there, Jesus really believed he was the major subject of the entire Old Testament. I mean, he said that to them over and over again. If you believe Moses, you will believe me because he wrote about me. And then on the road to Emmaus there, it's beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He explained to them what was in scripture about himself. And then later on, I think it's like three or four verses later, with with, uh, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, he goes through and explains that. And the thing is, we know what he taught them because what do you see in the book of Acts? How do the apostles preach Christ? from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. They, they cite all those books. They learn that stuff from him. So, all right, good. Any other thoughts or comments? All right, we'll, um, we'll stop there then, and let's, uh, let's close in prayer.